Hello and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. <laughs> we gotta save this take. This is yeah. Just re- restart. Hello and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Stephen Craig and Parker Newman. <laughs> Sorry about that. Josh just told a, told a really funny joke and <laughs> kind of rolled over into the intro. Perfect way to start the the podcast. Yeah, and this is episode twelve. Episode twelve. Uh Stephen. You were working on a really cool uh, mic, actually, for Josh. Uh, a power supply, I think, for Mike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. For a mic. So, uh, uh, Josh and I have been uh, been friends for a while now, and uh, and I, I do some some repair work for him. I've been actually doing audio repair work for a handful of years now. Uh, and, and so, Josh actually gave me a an old Sony C37A microphone, uh, old tube microphone, um, that he had, uh, that uh, was in need of a power supply. Uh, because these 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 mics actually run on uh, a couple hundred volts and with the uh, with heater voltage and and all that jazz, and actually the uh, the kit that he had didn't include the correct power supply. It had a power supply for a completely separate tube mic. Uh, so so Josh asked if I could uh, build up a uh, a power supply for that. So I've been I've been working on that for the past oh good while now, and uh, and finally got it finished. Oh, and uh, for our listeners, uh, Josh is the person who lets uh, lets us record here and does all our editing. Well, minimal editing basically makes it so that we sound decent on mics. Um, <laughs> just letting the listeners. I think we talked about Josh once, so okay, yeah, yeah. Jo- Josh, the audio guy, yeah. And uh, he actually just got done drying out his uh, recording studio from the Texas flood of 2016, the torrential downpour. Yeah. One of a, f- a 500 year flood, su- supposedly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> M- Monday was a lot of fun here in Houston. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, um, what um, I know you had some problems building this thing. Um, you're because I saw you were building it on Saturday, this last past Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. And you were basically it looked like you were using like a tuning rod because you were holding the transformer like rotating it in space and it was going so okay for, for, for the listeners these old tube mics have a really interesting design feature in the fact that they feature right well yeah feature uh, it's, a, it's a great word but uh so they, they include the entire power supply so that that's two rails one at about 200 to 300 volts somewhere in that range uh, another one that's semi-regulated at six and a half ish volts, and all the audio wiring in a tiny box, um, and that audio wiring includes an output transformer, and they try to shove all of this in, t- in in a tiny little box. So, so the the actual configuration of the mic itself is is basically, if you think of it in in transistor terms, it's it's kind of like a a uh, common common cathode. A common mm-hmm. cathode, so so it's basically a buffer. You have the 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 sensing capsule, uh, and then it just goes into a buffer, and that's sent down to the power supply, where it's actually converted into a balanced signal using the output transformer. Uh, so you actually have to send a couple hundred volts up to the mic, and then send your tiny little audio signal down and convert it to a balanced signal inside the power supply. And that comes with a lot of issues with the fact that you have a big output transformer right next to your power transformer. Uh, so grounding is key, and the orientation of the two iron components in relation to each other is absolute key. And he, he's talking about the iron in the transformers. 
Well, yeah, right. Yeah. I, Iron meaning wound. transformer. Uh, just because the magnetic field from your power transformer gets coupled very easily onto your audio lines. Because the, the thing about this mic that's crazy is it technically doesn't have any gain in terms of positive gain. It's, since it's, a, since it's a, um, uh, a common cathode, it actually technically has slightly less than unity gain coming off of it. So whatever comes out of that capsule, that's the voltage you get effectively. So your output transformer picks up that magnetic field very easily. And you were talking about kind of me moving a transformer around. I had to physically align and move the transformer to find the lowest angle at which it picked up the least amount of noise and then bolt it to the chassis in that, in that orientation. So that was a little bit of a chore <laughs> to, yeah. put, to put the least. <laughs> and, and on top of that, having a really, really strict star grounding system. Mm -hmm. uh, I found that I, I probably tried six or seven different ground schemes on it, and every single one produced noise until I just said, you know what, screw it. I'm going to take every ground wire and connect it to chassis at one point and do a true star ground, and I found that that's the only way that I could get the noise to a, uh, a reasonable limit. Yeah, so uh, on that reasonable limit, what 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 would did you consider reasonable? I actually measured it. Oh, okay, cool. Um, well, uh, measure in quotes uh, because I was looking at it in my audio workstation, so it's not. I'm not looking at it in in terms of test equipment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, it was negative between negative fifty and negative sixty decibel. That's that's. With, when I applied a bunch of gain to it, yeah, yeah. after applying gain, so it wasn't—it's not terrible. I—I I would love for it to be in the negative eighty range, but fifty sixty can be acceptable, especially after putting a bunch of gain on it. Right, cool. But once again, I—I I don't know how calibrated those numbers are because I'm looking at it through my audio workstation, not. Yeah an actual test gear but yeah that's not not terrible so so what kind of applications you would you use this kind of tube mic for this is this is purely aesthetics i would i would pretty much <laughs> say so uh this is this is of what i know of the research i had to do to to do this uh get this power supply for the mic work and this is a highly sought after mic um and and in the recording industry this is this is a go-to in a way in terms of pristine sound. Ah, okay. So, cool. interesting thing is there's not a lot of information in terms of schematics and things like that. So, interesting. Not like most uh like amplifier like guitar amps have schematics everywhere for them. Yeah, you can usually find those pretty easily. Yeah. And then uh, I've been working on more test fixtures at Macrofab uh, for customers and uh, mainly for the Pinheck, mm -hmm. adding more. Uh, things it tests on the board and i actually just finished about 10 minutes before i started to drive over here uh got all the uh pick 32 side stuff tested cool so the pick 32 and actually the parallax propeller 100 test every single io pin on that pin heck so all 160 some odd pogo pins are tested now wow the last thing to implement is the Pick 32 I square C tests where it uh, it will communicate to the I square C devices that are on the pin heck board 
and do a self-test, basically say, hey, is the real-time clock talking? Is the EEPROM talking? That kind of stuff. And that's it. Awesome. Yeah, and that whole test only takes, uh, I think now it takes two minutes and ten seconds. Wow, it just rips through it. Yeah, and all you do is just, like, you just talk in the serial terminal, yes, 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 yes. And then at the end it spits out errors, if there is any. Yeah, the only interesting issue I found was um, on the solenoid tests, it basically, it ha- the solenoid banks have MOSFETs on it, uh, N-channel MOSFETs, because they're low-side um, uh, switches, is if you put a uh, NPN transistor in its place, like a TIP-102, which we had TIP-102s on that board, so if one accidentally gets placed in the solenoid spot, um, it will actually test fine, because it drives that NPN like a switch oh uh, okay but the moment you probably put 50 volts and try to put like five six amps through it it'll probably make the nice magic smoke. smoke yeah um and the problem is you can't actually test that on the uh test fixture there's no way to do it and the only way i could think you could do it is if you actually read the analog signal mm-hmm. uh and actually me- basically measure the voltage of all those pins yeah but the problem is you would only see a 0.2 volt-ish difference, yeah. which might be under your uh, tolerance for all those FETs. I didn't run the numbers, but it might be. And so it might be you just can't tell if you have a NPN versus a, versus a MOSFET. Well, w- w- what would be the reason why you would need to check that? Just it, uh, so operator it, so, mess up or something? Yeah, so if the operator, or the person who's stuffing the boards yeah. puts a TIP-102 in a IRL-540 spot, yeah, um, and then the board went on to chuck up and spooky pinball, and they plugged it in, yeah. and that solenoid fired, it would probably blow out that TIP-102 instantly. Make a lot... you know. Actually, well, hey, it hey, might get, last a while. It depends on what, what, which one it is. If it's one of the ones that fires really quickly, yeah. it probably would be okay. Yeah. But if it was one of the ones that, like, the, uh, the magnet that stays on for, you know, 10 to 15 seconds, that might do it. It would just overheat and toast yeah, it. Yeah, it would overheat and toast that tip. Um, the good thing is tip 102s have a different color grounding tab. Uh-huh. Or it's not a ground tab. I think they're attached to... Uh, the emitter. I think the tab's connected to the emitter. Um, really? Or is it? It's usually tabs are usually connected to collectors. Is it, okay, it has to be a collector then. Yeah. So it's connected to the collector, but that tab is a completely different shape and color than an IRL five forty MOSFET. So when you look Wait, at you it, you mean the actual metal? Yeah, the metals. Oh, is, is it kind of like a like a more copperish color? No, the the MOSFETs are. Okay. MOSFETs are a uh, copper color. Yeah. Whereas the uh, TIP 102s are, are actually tin dipped. So they're really? very uh, matte silver colored. Yeah, like a kind of brushed aluminum ish. Yeah. yeah. And so it's actually very easy to visually tell, um, but you can't tell through the test. Gotcha. So that's the only thing I've found that would be a, possibly a problem. Yeah. But I haven't ran that, into that issue yet. I just thought of that just like, what if this happened? uh so that's what we've been doing this week uh oh yeah and i've been working on uh a fan controller for my jeep oh yeah so i've been writing a display driver for a ginormous oh yeah you brought that vfd in yeah it's a ginormous four by 40 character vfd 
that runs off that uh, HD 44, what, 50, whatever, that, basically a normal character display. Right, yeah. That are really cheap. It basically runs off that same protocol, except it has two E lines, um, which basically they use the E lines as kind of like clocks. Mm hmm. Uh, and so basically the first two lines use E1 and the next two lines use E2, which is kind of weird. Um, some, or at least hmm. a couple um, four line character displays I've looked at, they use one E line and they just expanded the memory instead of just making two separate banks. Yeah, that's that's kind of strange. Yeah, it's a little weird, but it works now. Yeah, it looks great. Yeah, and I, all I've got to implement now is the brightness control since it's a VFD the brightness controls actually through the controller, not through an external, basically LED that you PWM. How, how do you do? You write a value to? Yeah, there's just a different command that you send. Oh, okay. Um, it follows one of the setup instructions, mm -hmm. and so what you can do is you basically send the setup again, and send a brightness command. Is it just a value that you send it, or is there like high and low? Uh, well, you set a uh, you set the RS value, uh -huh. uh, RS pin to high. And then you send the command, and the command's got a certain, uh, certain kind of like look to it. Yeah. And then it knows, okay, this is the brightness command. And then the last two bits in that 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 uh, that byte are the brightness. So you have four levels. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So you, you, it's not like you have, you know, a thousand different levels. No, no, no. You only get four different levels. Okay. It's only two bits that you set. Sure. Yeah. So at default, zero, zero is uh, highest brightness, and then it goes all the way down to very dim. But basically, I want to do that, uh, do brightness control, and basically what the the fan controller is going to do is actually read the uh, a, a, uh, a light bulb in my dash, mm -hmm. because when you turn the lights on, the, uh, the dash actually gets... Uh, dimmer okay because at at night you don't want really blinding lights in, in your eyes sure and so it dims the dash and so the um the fan controller is going to have an adc on it that will read that and say hey the dash is supposed to be dim dim this display so it's not blinding the driver yeah yeah i could see that being a big trouble because yeah, that thing is pretty bright, bright. that vfd it's, is it's really bright yeah and well, i guess we'll roll right into the rfo yep um, there's a really cool video uh, that I can't remember the person who put out the video. I, it might have been NVIDIA. Uh, it could have been. Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure. But uh, basically, NVIDIA allowed someone to come in and record their uh, this um, guy named Howard that's at their silicon failure analysis lab. Mm -hmm. And they do the R&D end of testing. Right. Uh, how do they test their chips and all that stuff? Well, along with the failure analysis when something goes bad. Yes. And the, so the crazy thing about this is they are able to find... So, like, the chipsets on these NVIDIA chips, they have billions of transistors. He was saying nine billion. And nine billion transistors. And they can find one transistor out of that entire nine billion that failed. That's insane. Yeah. If, if you're into... Silicon dye and and semiconductor physics and and all that lovely jazz, you will just absolutely drool over this video. It is awesome. And the best thing is, whenever he introduces a new machine, he also introduces the price tag. Oh, every <laughs> single machine. Yeah, that, this is two and a half million dollars. Yeah, all those machines are worth more than I make in a year, like ten times over. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
no, electron they, they microscopes. had some yeah, electron microscopes, TEMs, uh, all kinds of crazy thermal testers, 3D X-rays, yeah, all kinds of cool stuff. Yeah, it's that's a, uh, all to make sure that you can game faster. Yeah, make sure you get higher frames per second. Yep. Oh, and compute a uh, computational because they also make uh, workstation cards. Yeah, and it was funny. I was actually having a, a chat with Parker earlier. It makes total sense that they would have all of this stuff, but you don't really realize it just because you know they make graphics cards, and yeah. and it's not. I mean, they're they're expensive piece of machinery. There's a lot of technology that goes behind it. In some cases, a lot more than what you actually have as your main computing uh, um, hardware. Yeah, but it, you would you just wouldn't think that they have this you know thirty forty million dollar fab just sitting there making sure you can get that 60 frames a second you know yeah it's one of those things where you would think they would test the chip and that chip failed to be like oh okay whatever you know mm-hmm. they have a certain yield yeah uh but they actually test all those failures oh yeah so that's it's kind of interesting that they actually did test all that stuff i guess i guess that's part of improving their yield is fix these issues that are causing these chips to fail. Well, when you when you release a new GPU or anything that has a significant amount of um, uh, transistors in it, the, the industry standards, you can kind of expect somewhere around 30% up, uh, yield upon release of that chip. Uh, and by maturity, you expect closer to 80 to 90% yield. And so these guys are probably the guys who are tasked with getting it from the 30 up to the 80 to 90. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, I wonder on those 30%, if that's closer to the center of the wafers. You know, I don't know. Because, yeah, it's been a long time since I've taken solid state design, but I recall that that's usually the case. They um, might have new technology that's fixed that, though. Yeah, well, and, and, and it's, if you think about I mean, most fabs are running 300 um, millimeter wafers. Uh, nowadays, so what constitutes the center? Yeah. You know, is it like, is there an inch around the border that it just gets messed up and all the rest is considered center? Or, I don't know. I don't yeah, know. Just, interesting. Yeah, very interesting stuff. Go, we'll have the link in, in, in the blog post. Uh, go give a look to it. Yeah, super cool. Yeah, super cool stuff. And then uh, Microchip came out with the PicDim Lab 2, which is... Uh, basically a little development board that you basically can plug any kind of pick or dip pick yeah. into it. Well, it's meant for all of their 8-bit side. Okay. Um, what, what, what? Say what, Josh? <laughs> dip pick. You can plug any of those in. Yes, any dip pick. <laughs> you can plug into it. Um, <laughs> uh, anyways, the cool thing about this is we actually used a PicDim Lab 1 that Steven brought up to prototype the, uh, the Macro, Macro Watch. Watch. Yeah. It's, uh, it's really convenient because it just has a whole bunch of uh, um, dip sockets. So you can just plug in whatever uh, chip you have. Uh, and it has a bunch of headers where you plug in the pick kit. And you're off and programming. Yeah, so... I mean, sure, that's cool and all, this new uh, Lab 2 thing. I think it just supports different versions or something like that. Mm-hmm. But the co- interesting thing is the uh, recommended videos after 
and this is actually something Stephen found, <laughs> recommends a video by Dave Jones from the EEV blog yep. where he completely trashes the pit kit three. <laughs> and okay, so I stumbled upon this because I was I was uh, floating around um, EE EE web. Yeah, that's where I was. And and on EE web there is uh, microchip has their own like sub kind of domain on there where they broadcast all this microchip stuff and it's all like hey we're microchip we're we're awesome and then that all the videos that popped up it's like you might want to watch these and it's everyone is dave just trashing microchip <laughs> <laughs> yeah dave dave doesn't seem to really like microchip too much he doesn't like the pick kit yeah the pick kit three and like the pick kit two yeah love the, the pick kit two and and you know i the thing is i never used the pick kit two i started on the three so yeah, I, I don't, don't see what's, I don't see why it's bad, but I yeah, don't know. Me either. Ma- um, maybe if I pick up a two, I'll be like, oh my gosh, this, this I, is amazing. I think that what it is is the three can't provide as much power, uh, pa- can't power uh, devices uh, as much. I think it's one of the issues. And there's something about memory. It doesn't have either any or enough memory. I can't remember what the deal was. Yeah, it doesn't matter. The Picket three works. At least works for us. I've I've always been able to program chips. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, there was a really cool uh, Hackaday project of a desktop siege cannon. Oh, yeah. This thing was awesome. So uh, this cannon actually uses uh, flash paper or uh, what was it? Nitrocellulose? Yeah, it's kind of like gun cotton almost, too. Yeah, yeah, effectively. And, uh, and basically, the guy who designed it used two six-volt batteries and just effectively electrocuted this gun cotton and it just it makes an amazing fireball yeah uh, and i wish it, it was something i could have on my desk yeah so we were, we were talking about a design to make this work for macrofab and i was thinking is you put an electrolytic down the down the barrel down the barrel yeah backwards and then you, so the leads are sticking out no 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 you put it down normal but oh. you Reverse bias the cap, oh. and so you have a, like a capacitor bank that's yeah. charged up with a couple hundred volts, and then hit an electrolytic backward, like a ten volt electrolytic backwards. Yeah, but hit it with like a thousand volts or but something. Hit it with like a thousand, and that thing will shoot out of the barrel. Does that constitute a biological weapon? Oh, with all the electrolytic flying yeah, everywhere, with all and the, the goop on the inside. Yeah. Oh well, it'd be really <laughs> cool looking. It would be awesome. Um, I think we have to build one at least in. Uh, as a personal project. Yeah, yeah. I'm totally down for that. <laughs> yep. And then uh, Big Clive had a really cool video. This, this is a guy that does really cool videos on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, mainly breakdowns of really bad and dangerous products that will probably electrocute you. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So this uh, Big Clive basically took apart um, a USB soldering iron. And... I mean, USB can only provide, what is it, uh, 2.5 watts. Is that really all it is? The I USB, thought it was... That's 5 volts at 500, half an amp. Oh, yeah, half an amp. You're right. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Uh, but this thing's actually pulling 8 watts, so you can't actually plug it into a normal USB 2.0. You have to plug it into a uh, basically a power pack or a charger, USB charger. All right. Something that just can deliver... Lots of power. Oh, yeah, a bit more. Uh, and the cool thing about it is it actually uses a 555 timer. It doesn't have a microcontroller in it. It uses a 555 timer. It just PWMs the heater element? Yeah. Nice. Um, and it has a timeout. So it has a little, little 
vibration spring, uh -huh. and if it doesn't sense any movement, the 555 timer times out and turns off the iron. Ah, that's nifty. It's a really neat design. And he actually shows them soldering, like MOSFETs, connectors, stuff. So it actually does work fairly well. Yeah. And then, well, of course, me being an electrical engineer, I'm like, how could you make that better? <laughs> so you need more power. Sure. Well, the USB 3.1 spec over type C connector can do three amps over five volts. Okay, so, so 15, you get 15 watts. watts. Yeah. But then you can also do USB power delivery over the same connector. Yeah. Which is 20 volts at five amps, which is 100, 100 watts. watts. 100 watts is plenty to do a soldering iron. Oh, I mean, this guy was soldering with eight. Yeah. A 100 watt, you'd be able to solder. You can braze one metal. gauge wire. Yeah, you can braze <laughs> some stuff together. Yeah. And so I, I actually did a little research on how you would make this work. Um, so I was looking at the, the uh, TI TPS 65986. Uh, okay. Yeah, it's a number. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, that part is basically a USB C or USB uh, 3.0 and 3.1 Type C style uh, chip. Mm -hmm. And using that chip is uh, you can talk to USB 3.1 and configure your device. And so you can set up all this power stuff. Oh, okay. Is, is that how you uh, enumerate? What, what, no, what's it called? The power, not power on the go. or You mean it, on the go? No, like the, the 20 volt 5. Oh, power delivery. Power system. delivery. Do you have to enable that? Yeah, you basically have to talk to it and say, hey... I'm a device that can that needs this. Can you give it to me? Huh. Because it's only going to do that on certain occasions. I, you know, are they planning on having this as an available outlet on your desktop? Laptops. Laptops are going to charge this way. So oh. instead of having a barrel jack like we do now, yeah. you're going to have a USB-C power delivery plug. Oh, that's cool. And so you plug that, your, your, your laptop power supply will plug into that yeah and then you can also plug in your cell phone into it and so your cell phone can super juice off of it and they actually say you could do device to device too so one la if one laptop's charged up and the other one's dead you can just charge one laptop to one laptop using the same cable and connections that's cool yeah it's pretty cool stuff i wonder what kind of safeguards they're gonna have to put in place with that. there are lots yeah i was, I was looking at the schematics and stuff for this stuff um, it's very different from how USB, USB 2.0 is handled. Yeah. So USB 2.0 is handled is like you have a MOSFET that base a, a P channel high side MOSFET that turns off and on for enumeration. Yeah. And then you have a uh, usually you just have an inductor to prevent inrush. Mm-hmm. That's about it. This is way more complicated because also that connectors um, can be flipped over. Yep. And so actually these chips have. Uh, which way the cable's plugged in, um, it can detect which way. Oh, so it knows which one is which? Yes. Choose your own adventure. Basically. So, uh, now, now, this is actually an interesting question. So, to get that 20-volt 5-amp, it's going to have to run on a DC-DC switcher um, to get it up to that level. Well, it depends on what it is. So, like, your laptop power brick yeah. would probably just out... Will just output 12 volt 20 volts because they most of them output 19 already right right okay but so i'm what i'm just curious about is if you're pulling the full 100 watts watts and you're talking digital communication over that line 
I, during I this? I don't know if you can oh, okay. do that. I haven't looked too much in the spec. I'm going to because the noise on that's got to be terrible. I'm going to assume you probably can though. Wow. Uh, I mean, yeah, of course it would. It's DC, but pulling that much, you'd have to have a pretty clean line to not interfere with all the rest of the. Especially uh, at uh, ten gigabits a second. Yeah, that's. I'm I'm gonna go do some research on this. I want to learn some more. Yeah, I'm gonna uh, do some more research on this, and we'll be back next week with probably. I'll probably try to have a rough schematic or at least a block diagram of how to do simple enumeration and get power delivery working yeah like a feasibility test yeah see if this would actually work because i kind of want to make it so that you can power a soldering iron off a cell phone (laughs) type c connector what i what i love about this whole thing is like this is sort of the new cutting edge technology and you want to make a soldering iron yeah i want to make a soldering (laughs) iron out of it (laughs) i love it uh, and then I was looking at, uh, if you go into Mauser and just type in, like, Type-C connectors, yeah. some really cool stuff pops up. And the Is one there I'm already probably... a good bit available? Yeah, from, like, Molex, um, of course, and, like, FCI's got some, uh, TI, not, not TI. What's, what's, is, is it TI? Oh, is it Tyco? No, it, I think it's TI, TI, uh. Interconnect? Interconnect. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. them. And then uh, JEE Electronics. Mm-hmm. That's actually the probably one I'm going to use. It's a really big, long part number that's on my sheet. I'll just post it in the blog. Yeah. <laughs> it's like 20 characters long. But that one looked really cool because it actually had uh, mounting tabs in the front with SMT pads in the back. Oh, were the rest of them yep. all surface mount? Yeah. Business in the front, party in the back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I you know I the the through hole legs call them a pain they're so much more reliable. Well, yeah, especially with a if you're going to have this on the back of a soldering iron, it's going to be flexed a lot. So I'm thinking as much mechanical stability as I can. You should uh, you should back that sleeve. Uh uh oh. <laughs> Speaking of that, we had no one give us ideas on Twitter. Well, Thank yeah. Thank you listeners. Un- unfortunately. <laughs> I might have been for the best. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that's, uh, yep, we're at the bottom of our sheet here. You have yep. anything else to add? No, I think that's it. All right, cool. You'll sign us out? Yeah, well, this was the uh, Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dolman. Have a good day. Later, guys. <laughs>